Hi. A brief promo, because this is a real homegrown effort, and so I'm going to ask for a little homegrown support. If you like what you're hearing, please follow me and recommend or write a review wherever you're finding this podcast. For more info, pictures, links, and newspaper clippings, check out couldbeanytown.com. Thank you. So this one is going to be a two-part episode, but with just a week between them. In part one, we'll be taking a good look at a certain woman's social club that started out as a place to talk about Italian paintings, but became something much more. And then in part two, we'll meet a doctor in the midst of a midlife crisis, as well as a group of angry cigar salesmen. And we'll find out what they all had to do with each other, and a pandemic, and the way that pandemic was experienced here in Alameda which in a number of ways seems pretty similar to some things we've seen around here lately. Thanks for coming back. I'm Angeline Smith, and this is Town. In September of 1896, the newly formed Ladies Adelphian Club of Alameda held a tea. For three hours, they discussed art and looked at beautiful pictures, reproductions of the Florentine masters, while sitting in the home of the club's newly elected vice president, Mrs. Clarence M. Smith. One of the women, uh, Mrs. Nelson, sang delicate Italian opera to the others, who sat knee to knee, drinking in both tea and culture. Their hope was to devote some time to a study of the arts, and although it was early days, the Adelphian Club was already showing signs that it would catch on. Only a couple of months after forming, there were now over 50 attendees jammed into Mrs. Smith's house to look at pictures of things far from their own experiences, and listen to music in a language few would have understood. But the real goal, to simply gather, it had been accomplished. There had been a little bit of beauty a little bit of something out of the ordinary introduced into their lives that afternoon. Plus, you know, tea. Within six months, they would expand to a hundred members, and no amount of chair rearranging would allow that number to fit into Mrs. Clarence Smith's living room. And so they moved their meetings to what was then known as the Tucker Building on Park Street. The Tucker Building was grandiose, an ornate two-story L-shaped building branching out from a corner along both streets, with a tower at the spot where the two sides met. Side note, the Tucker Building is still there. It's one of the very few on the main street from that era that survived, albeit minus a story and a whole lot of ornateness. In the 1930s, a bit of overzealous modernism transformed it into the building that locals now know only as a good place to get a pitcher of margaritas and a burrito roughly comparable in size to a six-year-old child, both of which would have improved the Adelphian Club gatherings even more. But it was 1897, and Alameda Society ladies made do with tea. They continued to meet, weekly, and sometimes more than weekly, to listen to lectures on everything from music to drama to language, later expanding to include a book club and educational sessions on nutrition and science, then current events, and then civic projects. And at the time, it was publicly noted and applauded 
more than a little unfairly, that the women were not meeting to discuss the servant girl question, or the neighbor's children's measles, or the latest thing in bonnets. In other words, anything that would have actually pertained to their daily lives and therefore been very natural to talk about. But rather, they were there to gather and appreciate the grand and the beautiful. And though the men that they were leaving back at home had been at first inclined to be alarmed at the prospect of neglected homes, crying children, and cold dinners, the women had shown themselves to be capable of both talking about current events and also getting dinner on the table. Thank God. And the Adelphian Club continued to grow. By 1900, membership had been capped at 250 members, and there was a long waiting list. And maybe here is a good place to pause for just a second, to recognize that this was a club, at least in those early days, composed entirely of white women. They were not specifically racist, I mean, probably some of them were, but in general they just wanted to meet with other women who were like them, who had the same interests, and unfortunately to them that also meant that they were supposed to look the same. They wanted to study art, and of course that art was very Eurocentric as well, and fill in the gaps of knowledge on oddly specific subjects like starch, like food starch. That was a particularly well-attended lecture, apparently. And unfortunately, none of them were also interested in actively fighting racism, or even changing the culture, in the club or out. So as we hear more about what they did, and a lot of it was good, let's also remember the other women who lived in this town, who might also have had an interest in the grand and the beautiful, or wanted to hear about current events, or starch, or even what is more likely the case with most of these women, to just simply go to a place away from children and men, to have a little quiet time, to talk to other women and feel part of a community. But the other women, the non-white ones, they will not be part of this particular story today, because they were not permitted to be. And that sucks. Because even if the talk on starch was boring as hell, and it was, clearly everybody at least deserves the choice not to hear it. Anyway, there they were in 1900, 250 white women hopped up on tea and poetry and lamentably lacking in inclusiveness and burritos and also, as it turned out, space. They were busting at the seams in the Tucker building, and so they started looking for something else. A committee was formed, and they started raising money for a permanent building. And in the meantime, they kept busy. They still liked the arts, but other subgroups had started. One of them was for civic improvements. And in 1901, the Civic Ladies began a campaign via a series of benefits to sponsor a dedicated bed at the Alameda Sanitarium that would be kept permanently open for the poor. Now, I'm not 100% sure how it worked, but I imagine in the event that two poor people were sick or injured at the same time, one would patiently wait outside for the bed to be vacated? Or maybe Rochambeau? I'm not sure. Regardless, the ladies raised $1,000 for the hospital bed that year, enough that they wouldn't even have to do a fundraiser again until almost two years later. And they didn't stop at hospital beds. Public playgrounds started popping up due to their efforts, while areas of sanitary questionableness got cleaned up. And Adelphian-sponsored outdoor concerts were common. And Arbor Day. Don't even get the Adelphians started about Arbor Day. These ladies loved planting trees. Now, this was by no means particularly special. The turn of the century happened to be a real golden age for clubs, and one of the main things these clubs liked to do was improve things in their towns. 
Over a million women in the U.S. belong to clubs such as this, and their reform-based agendas, which included temperance, child labor laws, suffrage, education, this was almost a template. In our town, both the men and the women, they were all in. Membership in clubs was widespread, and their initiation fees and annual dues meant that they had some real money in their accounts. The Adelphians had annual dues of $9, which was similar to the men, but the men's groups had the additional income of charging for degrees, like kids in their karate belt tests or Scientologists. Club members could rise levels, and every rise came with a fee. And that's how buildings got built. Their edifices still litter the downtown area of Alameda, albeit now often repurposed for new businesses. But they still bear the names of the clubs that built them, some of them carved into the very buildings. The Elks, the Masons, the Oddfellows. And in 1904, the ladies of the Adelphian Club were ready for their own building. So they sold tickets. 50 cents a ticket for musical performances and plays. They sold lifetime memberships at $100 a pop. They sold shares. All to raise the money for what they referred to as their new clubhouse. In reality, it would be a little grander. The auditorium alone would hold 600 people with a stage 30 feet deep. There would be three reception parlors, a banquet hall for 200, a kitchen, dressing rooms, various nooks. The final cost would be roughly $18,000, and that's a lot of 50-cent tickets. And so, on Saturday, August 15th, 1908, just a little after 2 o'clock, on a just beautiful day, in front of several hundred onlookers, they laid the cornerstone of the new Adelphian Club at the corner of Central and Walnut. There were songs and prayers and speeches. And then for posterity's sake, they decided to include in the cornerstone the following items. A calendar of events, their articles of incorporation, some meeting minutes, their constitution and bylaws, some yearbooks, a couple coins, a couple newspapers, a description of the building with details such as the cost of the various construction bids, a prospectus of the building company, the bylaws of a number of other lodges, a list of members of various other groups, a description of the wages of one of the Masons. I'm not kidding, it goes on. And I'm not an expert in cornerstones, but I feel like it could have been perhaps a bit more exciting. I mean, in ancient times, it was human sacrifices in the cornerstones, which I'm not suggesting, but, you know, it was a little less dry. But there it is, and boring or not, it is kind of cool to think that it's still there, in its metal box. That what they covered up that day is something that we still pass by. As interesting now as it was then, which is to say, not so much. After that, it would take four months to build. Four months until the doors were thrown open, less than a week before Christmas, and tea served once again to a festive crowd amidst wintry decorations. The past presidents of the club were there, which was not a terribly amazing feat, considering the club was pretty new. In fact, it was just 12 years after their founding, just 12 years after a handful of women had gathered into two rooms. The Adelphians had gotten their building. They used it well. Two years earlier, on April 18, 1906, the Bay Area had experienced a little bit of a tremor, followed by a little bit of a fire. 
In truth, it was more like a 7.9 earthquake followed by a fire that wiped out about 500 San Francisco city blocks. Estimates of the deaths in the city itself ranged from 500 to 3,000, but there would be none in Alameda. Indeed, as close as the town was to San Francisco, and Alamedans were close enough that they could watch from the marshland the wide panorama of flames and smoke just about three miles across the water. Despite that, the damage here was comparatively little. A Methodist church was heavily damaged, as was the Angel Bakery and Longfellow School. Much of the damage, like that at the bakery, was caused by water tanks, chimneys, and windmills crashing onto the buildings below. One resident, Asa French, experienced double whammy of tank and windmill crashing onto his house, demolishing it, and also drowning several chickens for good measure. City Hall was mostly spared, but its bell tower was damaged and would be removed, leaving the building still handsome, but never quite as impressive. One building that would not be spared was the Tucker Building, still the home of the Adelphians at that point. The lower floor was strained, while the upper were, in the eloquent words of one local paper, wrecked. This did not, however, stop the ladies. Within hours, a meeting had been arranged at the home of the president, Mrs. T.R. McGurn, and the following day, 20 club members had organized themselves into the Adelphian Club Relief Committee. The women started sewing, and they did not stop. They made underwear for women and children, as well as garments for the field nurses, who desperately needed a change of clothing after attending to thousands of patients in the midst of a thick layer of smoke and ash. They would also actively seek donations from the people in town, with the only condition being that it be clean and wearable. Several thousand articles of clothing would be distributed, and Mrs. T.R. McGurn would also be given full power to distribute money as needed. The women also shared babysitting duties at the gymnasium of the Unitarian Church, where almost a hundred orphans had been brought, as well as referring now jobless women to new employments. By the end of May, however, needs started falling off, and the various sections began meeting again, relieved that they had done their part, and could get back to art, and trees, and starch. As it turned out, though, it had only been a practice run. It started almost humorously. The papers kept featuring these little snippets. It would pop up in comic strips, or in amusing lifestyle columns that had titles like breakfast food. One comic strip, Mutt and Jeff depicted two World War I soldiers named Mutt and Jeff, not too surprisingly, where Jeff is sitting on the ground looking ill and holding quinine. When Mutt asks him what's the deal, Jeff replies that he's got the Spanish flu. You simp, Mutt says. You don't even know what the flu is. I'll bet you can't give me a sentence with the word influenza in it. I'll bet I can, Jeff replies. I went home last night and opened the window and influenza. And then Mutt throws the quinine in Jeff's face. And you thought Marmaduke was bad. Another comic would picture two women in protective face masks, which were sometimes called flu fences, with the headline, Spanish flu fence has advantages, will be a lifesaver in face powder. There were lighthearted poems and short stories. One humorous column joked, no germ, no microbe, no bacillus could live five minutes on the back porch of a market streetcar at 6 p.m. 
This was August of 1918, and still the impression was very much of something that was just a news story, of something happening far away. And it had actually been happening far away for a while at that point. As far as its origin is concerned, the research has pointed to France, or China, Britain, or even the middle of the United States. In March of that year, more than 100 soldiers at Camp Funston in Kansas had suddenly become ill. Within a week, the flu cases there quintupled. And with troop movement so rapid and widespread during the war, hundreds of thousands of people were traveling across the Atlantic every month. The flu spread unevenly throughout the US, Europe, and Asia, and it kept moving. Side note, the only reason it would be called the Spanish flu was that Spain was the only country during wartime that would carry no restrictions on what was printed in its newspapers. Elsewhere, including the US, any news story that affected war morale could be immediately censored and simply disappear. So Spain was the only one talking about it. But by the fall of 1918, it was just simply too big not to report. In September, there would be a second wave. This would be the big one, with a sudden explosion at military camps around Boston. And by late September, it reached the Bay Area. The Spanish flu appeared at almost the same time in both San Francisco and the East Bay, which includes Oakland, Berkeley, Hayward, Walnut Creek, Alameda. But while San Francisco would immediately experience an unrelenting spike, the towns on the other side of the bay took a little longer. Three weeks after the first case here, there were still only 200-some illnesses reported, and therefore the East Bay would be more hesitant to adopt measures to curb the spread. It would not be until mid-October, on the 13th, that the health department would issue a mild order that saloons and soda fountains disinfect their glasses. Which begs the question, were they not cleaning their glasses before that? Which generates the answer, no, it was 1918. But within the next week, things escalated and escalated drastically. A new city health officer, uh, Dr. Daniel Crosby, was appointed in Oakland, and he actually thought this might be a thing that people should take seriously. And so on October 18th, he shut down all the theaters, schools, churches, anywhere that people gathered. The following day, every newspaper story was the flu. And three days after that, on the 22nd, there would be a tangible sense of panic. And it was warranted. The flu had finally spread to the East Bay. On the 23rd of October, there were 105 new cases in Alameda alone. At the time, this was a town of only 35,000 people. It doesn't seem like much of a statistic, but that was 0.3% of the population in a single day. The entire United States was infected, seemingly. In the month of October alone, almost 200,000 Americans died of the Spanish flu. It did not help that, one, stateside there was a huge shortage of doctors and nurses due to the war. Two, that the African-American nurses who still remained in the U.S. would not be permitted to attend to white patients. And three, the doctors who remained here had a real penchant for prescribing aspirin, which they regarded as a wonder drug, in enormous toxic doses, which would actually exacerbate the symptoms of the flu. And of course, the other thing was, they still didn't have a real understanding of why it was so deadly, especially among adults in their 20s and 30s. 
And if you take away any new knowledge of the Spanish influenza pandemic from this podcast, let it be these three things. First, the Spanish flu did not come from Spain. Second, it was an H1N1 virus, similar to the 2009 swine flu, which definitely started in North America, but which the rest of the world has kindly not taken to calling the American flu. And lastly, it, like a certain virus we might be familiar with right now, triggered a cytokine storm as a reaction, or overreaction. And this made young, healthy people surprisingly vulnerable, and also added a real air of tragedy to the whole thing. And we're going to bring it back around to our Adelphian ladies now, just before we take a break and resume again next episode in part two. The Adelphians would themselves take breaks in the summer, just a month or two off from their meetings, so they could travel and relax and not have to be so culturally edified all the time. And they had done that, as per usual, in the summer of 1918. They had just reconvened after one such break on September 5th, 1918, when the papers were still full of those funny Spanish flu-themed comic strips. They opened their fall session with a British-themed program, which was followed by a social hour, and I think it's safe to assume there was tea. Things progressed pretty much along standard lines throughout that month, but began to change in October, which was the month that 200,000 Americans died of the flu. As churches were closed, and schools, and sporting events canceled, and even horror of horrors, the men's clubs, the Elks, the Masons, the Oddfellows, even they were no longer meeting. And around that same time, it was becoming very clear that Alameda's little hospital, with its 40-some beds, was perhaps a little, to put it mildly, lacking for what was happening. And then someone said, What about that new Adelphian Hall, the one with the auditorium that could hold 600 people and its three reception parlors? What about the banquet hall that could fit 200, and what about the kitchen and the other rooms? And, above all, let's not forget the women, because nobody was volunteering the Elks Building or the Masons. The Adelphian Hall came with the Adelphian women, who had mobilized within hours of the 1906 earthquake, and who had sewn underwear, just a shit ton of underwear, and who had babysat orphans and helped the jobless women find employment. And so the Adelphian Hall, which had taken so much effort to be erected, really as a haven for these women, it became a hospital, open to everyone, open to the infectious who would literally take it over on October 23rd, 1918. More about that next week. Thanks for listening. Keep well. All research, writing, and production for Town Podcast is done by me, Angeline Smith. My music, which I love, is by James Grant and Neil Cross. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon.